The Kumau Valley is home to lofty mountains, serene lakes, and charming villages. This region is nestled in the Himalayan mountain range passing through Uttarakhand, bound by Nepal in the east and Tibet in the north. In 1997, Rajneesh Jain moved to the town of Berinag in Kumau, and he noticed something. We saw ourselves surrounded by monoculture pine forests everywhere. And uh, come summers, and there were forest fires everywhere, you know, because the pine needles fall in the dry summer months, and they form a thick carpet on the forest floor. And, you know, any trigger, whether it's somebody throwing a live BD cigarette butt or somebody, a shepherd, leaving a live fire, triggers a fire, and then it's very quickly carried up the slopes by the winds. Because summers are absolutely bone dry, and the fires are devastating. This monoculture created a barren, slippery forest floor full of highly combustible pine needles that can take up to three years to decompose. People do not want it. So easiest way for people to get rid of these pine needles is to put them to fire. These yearly fires would damage the grass that herders needed for their livestock and prevent native species from growing. The fires would also wear down the topsoil, which led to flooding and soil erosion in the monsoon months. The monoculture pine forests do not retain any water and either everything just rushes down when the moment the water falls on the soil surface, it just rushes down to the streams causing a lot of soil erosion and even destruction on its way without recharging the water springs and the groundwater. Because of this loss of biodiversity, what we can very clearly see is there's uh, extreme climatic phenomena, either drought or flood. Two, three summers later, we started wondering what should be done. And then Rajneesh had an idea. We started looking at what if we gave it an economic value and there is energy in it, it destroys. We could generate electricity and cooking charcoal with that. And that could bring energy to the rural homes, you know, or usable energy actually. And that's when the eagle landed. So what if you could just generate power and send it in the grid right time? So that brought us to talking to the policymakers. Welcome to Second Nature, a new look at India's climate future a podcast series on the possibilities of nature-based solutions in India. This series is produced by the India Climate Collaborative and Edelgip Foundation Alliance. In this six-part series, we take you through the evolution of nature-based solutions in India and their critical role in climate action. We speak to practitioners, experts, leaders from the private sector and funders to learn how nature-based solutions can play a role in the goals that lie ahead of us climate action, community resilience, resource security, and biodiversity conservation. And we ask the important question, what kind of collaboration and investment do we need to scale these solutions? In this episode, we speak to Rajneesh Jain, Jasmir Dingra and Dr. Anapurna Vancheshwaran to learn about the role of government in scaling up nature-based solutions in India. Episode 4 
charting the course for nature. Rajneesh Jain is the founder of Avni, a community built on principles of sustainability and local empowerment based in Kumaon. When Rajneesh first got to Kumaon, he noticed that the pine forests were causing some particular problems for local people. The carpet of pine needles do not let anything grow on the forest floor. And uh, as a result, people are deprived of grass for their cattle. They hate this hideous stuff because it doesn't decompose like any other leaf litter. So imagine a material like that and then it becomes slippery in the dry summer months and then uh, the cattle slip because even the sure-footed cattle slip on the carpet of pine needles. You know, the, the Himalayan slopes are legendary. But how did the pine get there? Rajneesh speculates that it was brought during British colonization to be logged and used to build railways and shipyards. The gateway to Kumaon is called Kart Godam. The station literally means warehouse of wood. So the wood was logged, brought by the river routes to Kart Godam, and then the station was actually built precisely for that. But what is clear is today we have predominantly pine in an area which is not native to it. And that's our problem. When he had first moved to Kamau, one of Rajneesh's ideas was to work on bringing solar energy to the villages. He had seen that the area had a problem with electricity and wasn't well connected. The grid was virtually non-existent. It was still part of UP. People were using kerosene oil, wick lamps to brighten their evenings a little bit, whatever they could. Adding to this, was limited employment opportunities for the people of Kumaon. People either took to subsistence farming or jobs with government departments, and a large percentage would migrate to urban centers in search of work. I think the migration rate is quite phenomenal. Uh, the villages are almost empty oftentimes, you know, of empty of the young men, and now increasingly more young women as well. So who lives in the village is mostly old and children. I mean, there are probably some options in mining and, you know, logging and I guess, but those are not really sustainable, viable livelihood or, uh, options for the people here. When Rajneesh first began exploring potential solutions, he was aware that there had been a number of experiments to utilize the pine needles. For instance, carbonizing them to make cooking charcoal. But these experiments weren't very successful because pine needles have a low density, a key part of the reason why they catch fire so quickly. Then the idea of biomass gasification came up, but that too was quickly brushed aside, again because of their density. But it got Rajneesh thinking. That was my clue, and I started working on increasing the density. And then we made a lot of changes in the technology itself, the reactor and everything. And today, we have set up grid-connected power plants where the, it needs a lot of precision in terms of everything, you know, not just making gas, but continuous supply of gas for it to drive an engine at a regulated speed for to match the grid frequency and the voltage, you know. So all that is a lot of technology development work that we had to go through. This process today involves cutting the pine needles into fine pieces to increase their density before they are fed to the plant. 
The material is then burnt in the presence of limited oxygen, which generates a mixture of carbon monoxide, hydrogen, and methane. Once this mixture is cleaned and cooled, it is fed into a generator to produce electricity. Avni set up its first power plant in 2009 on their own campus, on land that was donated by the locals of the town of Berinag. They paid locals to help collect pine needles. And for a number of years, they struggled on their own. We realized, okay, we've done it. We've generated electricity and we've been able to make charcoal also. And the charcoal burns very beautifully. It cooks very well for rural women. But now what? Where do we go from here? We've set up one and now what? So then we thought that the only way to to kind of scale it a little bit is to be able to evacuate the power in the grid. Within a few years, very quickly, we had the grid came here. The, the pine needles are everywhere. The grid is also everywhere. So what if you could just generate power and send it in the grid right there? Rajneesh recalls a time when he was at a workshop organized by the Uttarakhand Forest Department. He had been invited to talk about his work, what he was attempting to do with the pine needles. So this uh, chief conservator forest, she told us that, oh, but you can't take, this is a forest produce, you can't take it without our permission from the forest floor. And you know, you have to pay for it. During the early trials, Rajneesh paid 15 paisa a kilo to the forest department to be able to collect pine needles from the forest. And you know, there was an uproar in that assembly and people, the villagers, they all stood up and started shouting that how can you even talk like this? You know, we all know that this stuff is destroying so much. And after this assembly, and then this chief conservator had to apologize and said that she didn't mean that. She only meant that you can take permission for collecting this. One of the villagers said, but why do we want need permission? You should be actually asking us to collect it. At the time, there were a lot of stories about fires in Uttarakhand in the national news. And Rajneesh's work had received some positive coverage, which he believes worked in his favour. But given his long-term vision to use the pine needles productively and keep them from being a hazard to the region's ecology, there needed to be some kind of resolution on the question of how pine needles could be used. So we realised that the only route open to us was the, a policy. A policy where they can't say that, no, no, you can't take this stuff. At this point, Avni had to work with the state because they wanted to electrify the surrounding villages. But the only way to get the power to those villages was to connect their plant with the state electricity grid. However, from the state's perspective, a single plant didn't seem worth it. Because 10 kilowatt power plant, nobody was willing to give us permission to connect it to the grid. We worked with the regulator to work on increasing the price of the electricity that anybody who sets up the power plant will be paid by the buyer. And the buyer is what? The state-owned company, Uttarakhand Power Corporation Limited. In his conversations with policymakers, Rajneesh also would bring up the livelihood angle. Running a small plant like this could offer a lot of employment to local people, and the issues had large consequences. Jobs, because a lot of people can earn livelihood by not only collecting pine needles, but also by operating and maintaining the power plants. So we had to work with the regulators on that, you know, to make them understand that, you know, the problem is not about energy per se, 
the problem is about biodiversity and ecosystem so that's when they started looking at it and then uttarakhand state allowed us to connect our 10 kilowatt power plant to the grid and that's how we proceeded getting access to the electricity grid was an important milestone it took 4 years of petitions and paperwork for the uttarakhand electricity regulatory committee the state's tariff and regulatory authority to finally award avni access to the grid at 7 rupees and 54 paisa per unit of electricity The next step in scaling up this idea was to reach out to the Uttarakhand Renewable Energy Development Agency which had started working on a policy for the use of pine needles. And it so happened that both these the regulation and the policy came into existence more or less at similar time and that became a big thing for people to jump into this kind of work. Aside from generating a livelihood opportunity there was a significant improvement in the biodiversity of the Kumao area especially marked by the return of Himalayan oak what we have observed is that in places where we have removed pine needles for 3 4 years continuously no forest fires happened in those patches we can see all the native species bouncing back by the fourth year first year some shrubs would come second year some other trees would come and third year the oak joins them oak is the most difficult species rajesh's journey highlights how integral state actors are to nature based initiatives the government played a critical role in scaling up the solution however avni was very strategic in their approach to designing their blueprint for scale and their success was rooted in their ability to reach out to the state at critical junctures but this solution which both improved local biodiversity and provided nature based renewable energy to local communities could not have come to life without support from policy avni has worked to expand the state's imagination of how diverse and important the benefits of such projects are while upholding the spirit of collaboration and respecting what each entity can bring to the table it's not as if we have rejuvenated the biodiversity in the himalayan region you know it's a huge huge problem but what it has done is it has ignited interests of people across the entire himalayan and not only the himalayan range across the world actually rajneesh's work at avni is a clear example of how policy can be a critical enabler for nature based solutions but what does it take to enable policy change in the first place So IDH is essentially not a very old organization. I like to tell people that it's 12 years young instead of 12 years old. It has this mandate for what we say market transformation and agricultural supply chains. Jasmeer Dhingra is the director of programs at IDH, an organization that focuses on improving agricultural supply chains through programs that build farmer capacity. to adopt more sustainable practices to adopt more nature based solutions look at the newer not trends but necessities of how the farming system needs to evolve and the way idh does this is by collaborating with the private sector we want to work on what we call pre competitive collaborations so since we're not buying and selling these commodities as idh 
our goal is to identify those common pain points for the sector and for the private sector and address those systemically and in collaboration with them. In India, IDH also works closely with the government to build the enabling environments that help farmers enter more competitive markets. Jasmeer talks to us about the cotton and tea industries, where crops are grown at large industrial scales and where there is a need to make value chains more sustainable or nature-based. So, for example, if you refer to the cotton sector, it's common knowledge that cotton is known for its challenges around overuse of agrochemicals. Sometimes it's uh, known for maybe not using water most efficiently in terms of on-farm water management. And these are challenges for all brands who are sourcing cotton in India, no matter which state, uh, no matter which farms. And it's something that needs to be solved more systematically. One of the critical ways in which IDH addresses these challenges is by building coalitions with different stakeholders, including the government, to identify how supply chains can be strengthened for greater sustainability. In working with the government, Jasmir says that you need a convergence of goals between different partners right from the start of the program, especially when the goal is to set up more transparent and regenerative supply chains that most often involve so many actors. Our most practical and most successful view of engaging with the government is actually purely on convergence for the first phase of the program. We want them to be able to sit with us, plan with us, and then also say, okay, if these are the targets that are set collectively by this group of stakeholders, which includes ourselves, then as a government, we could channelize these particular schemes that would help deliver the targets into those regions, right? It could mean, for example, a processor, you know, of fruit in the region, tapping into the agri-infrastructure fund to set up a processing plant. These are facilities that the government has available. And what we're looking for is an efficient way to access them, right? Creating new policy or like shifting existing policy is something that we focus on more as a, I would say, mid-term to long-term objective. In December 2021, the IDH Sustainability Trade Initiative conducted a multi-stakeholder workshop with 50 stakeholder groups, ranging from board members, farmer organizations, supply chain, intermediaries, technical experts, and private sector companies committed to sustainable sourcing. The question we asked all of them was the same one, which was that what stops you? What stops you from actually working together? Because we know that there are NGOs who work with farmers. We know that there are some companies who source from FBOs. We know that the government provides schemes to farmers and farmer families. We know that some companies also sponsor NGOs, you know, to work with farmers. However, there is no one space where we see all this convergence happen together in a way that it's designed on the same plan. We heard from companies that they don't know how to aggregate production that comes from different farmers. We heard from the CSO partners how they receive grant funding on a project-to-project basis, which sometimes makes it very hard for them to work long-term sustainably with a community, right? If they're only operating on grant cycles of one to two years and often with very fixed mandates and so on. We also heard from the government that for them, it is challenging to reach every farmer 
to deliver schemes and subsidies even though they announce them because someone needs to make farmers aware of what it means and the various procedures and the points of eligibility etc the overwhelming feedback at the end of the sessions was that if they were able to sit down and collectively understand each other's concerns and arrive at a single plan for the region they were open to setting processes for more transparent engagement that they were very willing to share the table to talk through these challenges and then set action plans towards them and let me fast forward so where we are today is that after that multi stakeholder workshop we actually launched our collaborative and what this means is that we had committed private sector partners we had committed farmer organizations committed local partners and the commitment of the government signing off to that common objective or that common target for these regions we are now in the process of designing projects to deliver on these targets in madhya pradesh idh has partnered with the lordes foundation and wwf to launch the regenerative production landscape collaborative which works with companies like inditex h&m group ikea and others to promote regenerative agriculture and sustainable sourcing in the state and they started in the chindwara district the compact also works with civil society organizations like srijan action for social advancement and aga khan rural support program government stakeholders and farmer producer organizations it is intended to reach 20000 farmers and regenerate agricultural practices in 20000 hectares of land we are working with two private sector organizations one in the potato value chain one in the orange value chain match them up with local organizations who work with farmers so that both ends of the challenges would be addressed simultaneously the growing practices the sustainable cultivation practices and at the same time the link to what the market needs and how is this produce going to get to the market and at what value how will that better value be translated back to the farmers with more efficiency right so it's not getting eaten up along the way because of not so transparent you know sort of supply chain linkages and these kind of projects all deliver to this common action plan that we built for the region Dr Anupurna Vancheswaran is the managing director of the India Arm of the Nature Conservancy a global conservation organization The Nature Conservancy focuses on key areas of land restoration, wetland restoration, agriculture and biodiversity preservation. One example of their work is the Sembakam Lake Restoration Project, which was successful in improving the water quality and local biodiversity of a wetland in Chennai. This was done by embanking the lake with reeds that act as a filter for waste as water flows into the lake. It was a simple cost-effective natural solution that brought visible results in water quality and endemic plant and animal species. Another one of their projects called Prana has been encouraging farmers in Punjab to shift away from stubble burning by providing crop residue management techniques and by promoting new cropping patterns that are less damaging to air and soil quality. The organization also works in collaboration with multiple stakeholders including the government and it has years of experience which has brought them insights especially on the challenges that exist in this space. For example, Anupurna tells us that because nature-based programs tend to be long-term, they often see several leadership changes within the government. 
If you have a five-year period, there are a lot of people who come and go. And to be able to be focused with the same ambition, with the same goals, with the same spread becomes a challenge. Additionally, governments often operate in silos, which makes it difficult to monitor government budgets. An estimated dollar $66 billion was to be distributed to India's greenest states in terms of dense forest cover, representing perhaps, you know, the world's largest environmental fiscal transfer related to forests. What you look at is that while the center does provide the states this support for having worked and contributed to enhancing the dense cover, which goes as a bonus to the state, but this additional money is not tied up again to be replenished for the green cover. And that becomes an issue because the state can use it anywhere it wants. And it could use up to create a road, which may not be necessary. It could be used up for any infrastructure that they think it's necessary. And sometimes there's an expectation mismatch because people want quick results on the ground. But we have to remember that policy is slow moving. Here's Jasmere again. So the government being the government often takes a longer term horizon, you know, and then thinks at such a scale that it can often take time to mobilize the changes very quickly, whereas the private sector is often quite fast moving, right? If they take a decision, they want to put it on the ground. Now, having said that, I think there's a huge role for the the policy, but also the support that the government has to offer, which is why the government is a key stakeholder. The success of nature-based solutions is closely tied to a foundation for collaborative problem-solving. And governments are an important player, not just because their buy-in helps to scale, but also because policies themselves could be an important catalyst for leveraging finance and innovative action. Policy then becomes a way to create agency so that people can be empowered to take action in ways that benefit them and the natural resources that they depend on. But getting to that point is a long process, and dialogue with the government is central to moving forward on issues that impact multiple sectors and stakeholders. In our next episode, we explore how nature-based initiatives work for business. Thanks to Rajneesh Jain, Jasmir Dhingra, and Dr. Anapurna Vancheshwaran. This podcast is produced by the India Climate Collaborative Edelgift Foundation Alliance. For more information on the India Climate Collaborative and its work on nature-based solutions, or to read a copy of the report, please visit indiaclimatecollaborative.org. You can also follow the ICC on LinkedIn at India Climate Collaborative.